Part 2, The Mechanism of Evolution, Chapter 7b of Organic Evolution, Natural Selection. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Joy Suzanne Grazier on the web at BurningJoy.com. Survival of the Fittest the survival of the fittest is therefore the result of natural selection. While the same conditions persist, specific change is very gradual, but with changing conditions placing a premium on new or different characters, species also undergo a change. Natural selection therefore enforces adaptation, and of two forms in competition, the adaptable will crowd out the inadaptable. This is forcibly illustrated by the Tasmanian wolf, or thylacine, Thylacinus cynocephalus, which is confined today entirely to the island of Tasmania, but whose remains are found in the superficial deposits of the Australian mainland, showing it to be but recently extinct. The thylacine is one of the native pouched animals, or marsupials, on page 287, which form the indigenous mammalian populations of Australasia and is characterized, among other things, by being dull of wit as compared with a true placental dog. Australia has such a dog, the dingo, Canis dingo, the origin of which is doubtful but is supposed to be of Asiatic extraction and introduced into Australia by human agency. We have here the adaptable placental placed in competition with the inadaptable marsupial with the inevitable result. The marsupial holding its own when it had only the ancient enemies of its race to contend against, but powerless in competition with the representative of a more vigorous stock. Nature's Balance Competition is inseparable from life and is really the source of all progress, but this very competition leads to a nicety of adjustment between rival organisms and a linking together of other beings into a marvelous web of interrelationships. This nicety of adjustment is known as nature's balance, and, although often unobserved, man has inadvertently sometimes upset this adjustment, causing dire results which he knows to his cost. Not all organisms are enemies, as we have seen in discussing the binomic relationships of animals in Chapter 3, but in many instances, although generally among unrelated forms, there is a marked interdependence, all of which adds to the complexity of the web of life, and at first sight the extremes of a series of interrelated organisms, when the links in certain chain are unknown or disregarded, make them seem very far-fetched as illustrations of the case in point. Such, for example, is the linkage suggested by Darwin between domestic cats and red clover, but when all of the links are known, the connection is at once evident. Darwin found by experiments that humble bees are almost indispensable to the fertilization of heart's ease, viola tricolor. For other bees do not visit this flower. He also found that the visits of bees are necessary for the fertilization of some kinds of clover. For instance, 20 heads of Dutch clover, Trifolium repens, yielded 2,290 seeds. But 20 other heads protected them from bees produced not one. Humble bees alone visited red clover, as other bees cannot reach the nectar. Hence, we may infer as highly probable that if the whole genus of humble bees became extinct, 
or very rare in England, the heartsease and red clover would become very rare, or wholly disappear. The number of humble bees in any district depends in a great measure on the number of field mice, which destroy their combs and nests, and Colonel Newman, who has long attended to the habits of humble bees, believes that more than two-thirds of them are thus destroyed all over England. Now the number of mice is largely dependent, as everyone knows, on the number of cats, and Colonel Newman says, near villages and small towns I have found the nests of humble-bees more numerous than elsewhere, which I attribute to the number of cats that destroy the mice. Hence it is quite credible that the presence of a feline animal in large numbers in a district might determine, through the intervention first of mice and then of bees, the frequency of flowers in that district. Huxley has added a link to each end of this chain of a relationship by the supposition that the cats are very largely harbored by the unmarried spinsters on one hand, whereas clover affords sustenance for the cattle which in turn produce the roast beef of old England, which nourishes their valiant sons which are the source of England's might, thus making the number of maiden ladies in a community productive in this very roundabout way the prowess of the mistress of the seas. It will be readily inferred from the foregoing how wonderfully delicate this balance of nature is in its adjustment, and how easily it may be deranged by human interference. A few notable examples of such derangement of balance may be given. The English sparrow was introduced into New Haven, Connecticut, for the purpose of eradicating the measuring worms which were defoliating the elm trees at the time, so characteristic of the town. It might be said, to its credit, that the sparrow did largely abate the nuisance for which it was imported, but owing to its fecundity, greediness, and quarrelsome disposition, it has become a widespread pest, driving out the native song and insectivorous birds, and offering in exchange only its own unattractive personality. Another instance is the Colorado potato beetle, Dorifora ditium lineata, a native of the Central West, where it fed upon the nightshade and was kept in check by its natural enemies. The introduction of the potato plant, a close ally of the nightshade, offered the beetle a new and abundant food supply, to which it took with great avidity, multiplying rapidly, for the lessening of the competition for food rendered the other natural checks of relatively little avail. The creatures then began an eastward migration in an ever-widening pathway, going from one potato plantation to the next, until they finally reached and extended along the Atlantic seaboard, and now extract an annual toll equivalent to thousands of dollars from the razors of the esculent tuber. In this case, it was not, as usual, the introduction of an animal into new environmental conditions that upset the balance, but the reduction of one of the most severe checks to survival, the struggle for food. Another very remarkable instance, the entire history of which is known, is that of the gypsy moth, Ocaneria dispar, which was accidentally liberated in Medford, Massachusetts in 1869. Professor Leopold Trouvelot, a French naturalist, was experimenting with silk-spinning caterpillars, especially the American species, to see if any could be made of economic importance. He also imported specimens of the insect under discussion from Europe. Evidence seems to show that some of the egg clusters or young caterpillars escaped from his house, and as he was aware of the dangerous nature of the insect in its native home, he destroyed all of the caterpillars he could find. But soon seeing that he could not fight them single-handedly, he reported the matter to the authorities. 
Little notice was taken of the insects, however, although after a few years they did become exceedingly troublesome to the people of the neighborhood by defoliating their shade and fruit trees. During the summer of 1889, however, their depredations and numbers increased to such an extent as to become a public menace, depreciating the value of property and causing an exodus of the infested districts, as they swarmed everywhere and many trees and orchards died as a result of the repeated defoliation. The legislature of the Commonwealth then took up the problem of extermination and appropriated the sum of $25,000 for their elimination. Additional appropriations were requested and granted until 1900, when the work of the State Commission ceased. In the meantime, another similar pest, the brown-tailed moth, Eoproctus chrysorui, had also been introduced from Europe. Together with the gypsy moth, which spread alarmingly with the cessation of the work of extermination by the state, has become a problem of national importance. Hence, the United States government, in cooperation with that of Massachusetts, has taken up the fight. Actual extermination seems now out of the question, as every available method, mechanical, by poison, or by fire, has been tried. And what the authorities are striving to do is to restore nature's balance by introducing the parasites and other natural enemies of the two insects from their native home with the hope that thereby they might be controlled and not become a burden greater than New England can bear. Yet another noted instance is the introduction of the carnivorous mammal, the mongoose, or pestis grisos, into Jamaica. Rats brought by ships became a plague in Jamaica. To cope with them, the mongoose was imported, and it made short work of both the Old World rats and the Jamaican cane rats. But when these were gone, the appetite of the mongoose remained, and the poultry and various ground birds began to suffer. Useful insect-eating lizards were also eaten, and another cloud rose on the sky. There was a multiplication of injurious insects and ticks, so that plants and animals began to be affected through an ever-widening circle. Thompson one instance where nature's balance has been restored after being upset by human interference is in the case of a scale insect accidentally introduced into California from Australia on some young lemon trees. This multiplied until it became a most pernicious pest, which various mechanical remedies failed to control. Search was made in Australia, and a natural enemy, a ladybug, was brought over to California, with the result that not only was the scale reduced, but almost completely eliminated. It was then found that the ladybug depended upon the scale for food to such an extent that it died in turn, and now protected colonies of scale and ladybugs are kept in readiness to control future outbreaks of the pest. Survival of the existing We have spoken of the survival of the fittest, which controls the existence not only of a race, or the individuals which make up the race, but also of the characteristics which compose the individual. There are, however, certain characteristics which seem to be non-important, and, so far as we can judge, have nothing to do with the organism's chance for survival. These non-essential characters are, as we may say, not of selection value, and persist through heredity. They are minor traits, such as peculiar color patterns, relative proportions of parts, or vestigial structures, like the red color seen in the fins of certain deep-sea fishes. These forms live in a habitat where, as no light exists, the color cannot be seen and is hence of no possible utility to the animal. The spots on the coat of a lion cub are also instances in point. 
Usually these indifferent traits may be interpreted in the light of historic vestiges and point to former conditions in racial history, where they were of importance in determining the chances for survival. To this category belong a great number of vestigial organs of which Weidersheim has enumerated 180 in the human body alone. See chapter 37. Summary. The effect of natural selection as an evolutionary factor has thus been summarized. A. Under new conditions, harmful characters will be eliminated by selection. B. Beneficial characters are intensified and modified. C. The great body of characters, neither hurtful nor beneficial, will not be modified but will persist through heredity. The resultant of these existing conditions of environment is, according to Darwin and his followers, an inevitable natural selection of individuals and of species. Thousands must die where one or ten may live to maturity, for example to the time of producing young. Which ten of the thousand shall live depends on the slight but sufficient advantage possessed by ten individuals in the complex struggle for existence due to the fortuitous possession of fortunate congenital differences, variations. The nine hundred and ninety with unfortunate congenital variations are extinguished in the struggle, and with them the opportunity for the perpetuation by transmission to the offspring of their particular variations. There are thus left ten to reproduce their advantageous variations. The offspring of ten, of course, will vary in their turn, but will vary around the new and already proved advantageous parental condition. Among the thousand, say, offspring of the original saved ten, the same limitations of space and food will again work to the killing off before maturity of nine hundred and ninety, leaving the ten best equipped to reproduce. This repeated and intensive selection leads to a slow but steady and certain modification through the successive generations of the form and function of the species. A modification always towards adaptation, towards fitness, towards a molding of the body and its behavior to safe conformity with external conditions. The exquisite adaptation of the parts and of functions of the animals and plant as we see it every day to our infinite admiration and wonder has all come to exist through the purely mechanical, inevitable weeding out and selecting by nature, by the environment determining of what may and may not live through uncounted generations in unreckonable time. This is Darwin's cosmo-mechanical theory to explain the transformation of species and the infinite variety of adaptive modification. A rigorous, automatic, natural selection is the essential idea in Darwinism, at least in Darwinism as it is held by present-day followers of Darwin. Kellogg Several objections to natural selection as a universal factor have been offered. Among them are the following. 1. To give rise to such specializations as elaborate mimicry or the electric organ of the torpedo, etc., which are of apparent advantage only in the perfected state, natural selection, acting only upon minute gradations toward perfection seems inadequate. The same is true of so complex and co-adaptive a specialization as the eye and its function in vertebrates or in insects and crustaceans. Kellogg. 2. Over-specialization, of which there seem to be repeated instances, such as the huge antlers of the extinct Irish deer, which in some instances outweigh the entire skeleton, or the immense spiral tusks of the Colombian mammoth, 
or the minute fidelity of certain mimicking insects such as the Kanama, page 243. All these point to the impossibility of natural selection as an agent, for it's inconceivable that natural selection would exert an influence beyond the point of greatest usefulness to cause the organ to become a hindrance and not help, nor would it extend to fineness of detail and mimicry far beyond the most aesthetic perception of the enemy to appreciate. The objection to this objection is the absence of absolute proof that these are rightly interpreted as over-specializations. 3. Natural selection cannot account for degeneracy. To say an organ is no longer useful and hence disappears is to state the effect and not the cause. If under changed conditions a character built up by natural selection becomes a menace, the reversal of selection can accomplish its removal, but this will not suffice where the characteristic is an indifferent one. Thus it will be seen that whereas natural selection may be conceded to be a factor of importance, it is apparently not the only factor, nor indeed the only important factor, in the evolution of organic life. End of Part 2, The Mechanism of Evolution, Chapter 7b of Organic Evolution, Natural Selection. Recording by Joy Suzanne Grazier, on the web at burningjoy.com.